Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson, and today both guests are rock guitarists. The first, Graham Goldman, is best known from 10CC, but he also wrote many of their songs, including I'm Not In Love, Rubber Bullets, and I'm Mandy Fly Me, as well as hits for the Yardbirds, Herman's Hermits, and the Hollies. The second, Earl Slick, born Frank Medelloni in Brooklyn, has played live and in the studio for many of Rock's royalty, including David Bowie and John Lennon and Yoko Ono. So first to Graham Goldman, who, when I met him at his home in London, was about to go on tour, but because of the current situation, was subsequently cancelled after we spoke. Private Lives with Paul Robinson. You obviously still enjoy touring, because I guess now there's no need to tour. You're doing it because yeah. you want to. I absolutely love it. It's part of what I do. It defines me in a in my my working life is a mixture of writing, recording and touring and I can't think of anything better than that. And also I can't do anything else. So and I have no uh, serious hobbies. So I don't go out on the golf course or anything like that. But I just love to play music and play with a band, be with the boys. It's great. That's good news for us. It means you'll carry on making music as long as you can, I'm as, sure. As long as I can, yes, that's right. Let's go back to the very beginning. You were in various bands in different incarnations. So let's talk about your first band and how that all started. I guess the first serious band, after a series of bands, you know, growing up in North Manchester, was the Mockingbirds. Um, and that was a band that had uh, Kevin Godley on drums. So half of 10CC were in that band. There was a guy called Stephen Jacobson on rhythm guitar, uh, who was the brother of is the brother of Howard Jacobson, the author, and the appropriately named Bernard Basso on bass. I really enjoyed working with that band. That was during a period in the sort of mid '60s where I was I'd started writing songs and having hits, uh, giving songs to other people, and the songs that were recorded of mine or that we recorded Nothing Happened At All with, which actually didn't bother me, because people used to say, well, you had your own band, and then you were giving songs away. You never actually give a song away, as if that was sort of, I'd be disappointed, but I wasn't. You know, I was playing in the band, which I loved doing, and I was having hit songs, so I, I wasn't complaining at all about that. And you wrote some pretty big hits. I mean, the one that really stands out in the very early beginnings of your writing career was The Yardbirds, For Your Love. Yeah, For Your Love was the first hit I had as a songwriter, back in 1965. It was a song that the we'd actually, the Mockingbirds had recorded. We'd recorded two songs and our record company rejected our version of For Your Love and put something else out. They turned it down. They turned it down, which in a way did me a favour because it found its way to the Yardbirds and, and became a really big hit for them and for me, of course. Now, there's a bizarre story. You, I think, were the warm-up band for Top of the Pops, and then something happened with your song. <clears throat> yes. Um, Top of the Pops used to come from Manchester in the 60s, from uh, Dickinson Road. It was a converted church, and it was used for Top of the Pops. And because they used to take quite a long time setting up the shots and the lighting, they had various bands in to do the warm-up to keep the audience amused, I suppose, or occupied. <laughs> they might have been amused as well. <laughs> but anyway, we did it a few times, I think, but one week we did it and the Yardbirds were on doing For Your Love, which was a kind of slightly bizarre situation. I was in the warm-up band and the, and the actual band on Top of the Pops, was, which was the Yardbirds, were doing one of my songs. But I was absolutely delighted. You're listening to Podcast Radio. 
You said you were quite happy about others having successes with your songs, but there must have been something inside you that said it'd be quite nice for me to sing my own song and have a success with it. I wasn't that bothered about that. I think what I was really enjoyed and still do today, which is why I still do it, was actually playing with other people. That That's one of the great joys of being a musician is to even if it's playing with one other person there's something very special about it so I would have been perfectly happy carrying on you know I think today if I if we hadn't say formed 10cc and what came after it then I'd be still be writing songs but I might be playing in a pub band something like that just because I love playing and I don't really want to be a star or anything I just want to play guitar in a band simple as that Let's talk about some other artists you've written for. The Hollies. Three hits for The Hollies. Yeah. Actually, two hits for The two Hollies. Two hits for The Hollies. I wrote Look Through Any Window, which found uh, its way to The Hollies via um, our publisher. But the second song I, I wrote specifically for them, which was Bus Stop. And I remember being with the Mockingbirds, supporting The Hollies. And if memory serves, it was at Stoke Town Hall. And I said to them... I've written a song for you. And I remember going with, I think it was Graham Nash and Tony Hicks into the loo there because it was the quietest place that we could find. And I played it to them and they said, that's great. Make a demo of it and send it to us. You played it in a loo in Stoke to them as a demo. Wow. Yes, yes, that's right. If memory serves, as I say. And that became a really big hit for them. It was a very, very important record, both for them and for me because that really broke them in America very big time. And and Graham Nash, in his book, very kindly acknowledges that fact. But of course, it was very good for me as well as a songwriter. You say you wrote it for the Hollies. When when you did that, what were you thinking differently, knowing you were writing for the Hollies as opposed to writing it for somebody else? I was a massive fan of the Hollies anyway, as I was a fan of the Yardbirds as well. That's great. I think I had in mind that I wanted to do something that would be able to feature their voices and their harmonies, really. That was the thing. And just the rhythm of it just felt right for them. So for me, that is, of all the songs I've written, when anybody asks, what's your favourite song? Which is, like, a, it's a fairly difficult question in that I've written so many. But I always say it's bus stop because it kind of defined that 60s era for me. As you say, that song was a hit in the US as well as in Europe. Mm. What was it about that, do you think, that enabled the Hollies to to break America? Why did that song do it for them when so many others didn't? I've no idea what what it was about the song. It's a bit of a mystery, really, why, in a way, why one song should be a hit and another one shouldn't. But I think as a songwriter, all you can do and all, all you should do is just do your best and write what you feel and hope that by coincidence, other people like it as well. When you write, can you think, I'm going to write a hit now? Is, is that something you do or you just write a song and hope it happens? That way lies madness. Okay, okay. <laughs> and you're not mad yet, I think, no, Graham. I'm not mad yet. I don't do that. I know some people do it and do it successfully, but for me, it's like chasing after something that's already disappeared. So I would, although I have very strong influences. I try to be inspired by them by the quality of what they've done, not the actual, I'm not going to copy anybody's songs, although there was a a period when I was writing all the Beatles songs by mistake. (laughs) And then I suddenly realised, oh, you can't do that. That song already exists. 
from when I was 19, when I started writing songs to this day, I just write what I feel and hope other people like it. We'll talk about 10cc in a minute, but let's get on to Herman's Hermits next. Mm -hmm. and, and No Milk Today, another big hit that yeah. I guess was very important for that band. It, very important for that band, and that also did really well in America. The interesting thing about that song is that it um, illustrates my collaboration with my late father, who was a, a real wordsmith. He wrote plays, he wrote poems, he wrote articles for newspapers. He should have been a professional writer, but he, but he wasn't. But he was certainly good enough to be a professional. With No Milk Today, that was his idea. He'd been to visit one of his friends who wasn't in, and as he turned on the doorstep, he noticed a milk bottle with a note in it. He came back to me and said, I've got a great idea for a song, No Milk Today. I said, that sounds like a terrible idea. He said, you're obviously missing the point. It's what, the, what does the empty milk bottle symbolise? It symbolises the fact that no one's in the house anymore, that love has left the house. And it, was, <laughs> it worked out to be a brilliant idea. And we worked on that song together. And uh, Herman's Hermits at that time were managed by the uh, guy called Harvey Lisberg who managed me. So it was easy to get the song to them. But, of course, Mickey Most was their producer and he was the one to... If he liked it, then that was it. From East London to the whole of London on podcast radio. We are East London Radio. So let's fast forward to 10cc. I remember seeing 10cc for the first time when you supported the Rolling Stones at Nebworth, yeah. and I think Leonard Skinner were on there. It was an amazing day, 1976. Yeah, Todd Rundgren was on. Todd, Todd Rundgren, Rundgren, yes, yeah. Utopia. Yeah. And you did One Night in Paris at the very start of the set, yeah. and of course that was the big long song on original soundtrack, yeah. which was an amazing album. Yes, it was a brave move, I think, and one I'm glad we made, although my memories of the day aren't that good in that there was a mysterious problem with one side of the PA that went down and I remember us hanging around and waiting to go on and it was really, really frustrating. However, to play in front of that amount of people was quite an experience. It was almost as if the the audience went on to the horizon. It was amazing. But yeah, we did open with that one night in Paris and I think we finished with I'm Not In Love. It was an amazing day. I mean, One Night in Paris is, is not an obvious song to do in a concert because it's, it's got a lot of effects on it. It's very much, a, yeah. I would have thought, more of a studio song. Yes, it is. And that's why we, like, we did it, because we shouldn't have done it, maybe. It just felt, why not, in front of all these people? I think we were really at a, a height then. But sadly, it was the last gig we ever did. We were in the middle of recording the, or very near finishing the How Dare You album, and the clouds were already gathering. And clouds as in the band, not the weather. As it, the clouds were you know, gathering, the, the metaphorical clouds uh, over the band. I remember after the gig, we went back to our studio in Stockport to listen to something we'd recorded. And Kevin Lyle said, that's it, we've, we've, we've had it, which was very, very sad. You finished with I'm Not In Love, although there was an encore, which I think was probably Rubber Bullets. Yes, we'd played the song, which I think, Whatever happens, 10CC will always be remembered for, which is uh, I'm Not In Love. When there were all these votes on the radio stations, in, the, in that time, 1975, oh, 76, yeah. 77, I'm Not In Love was always the listener's number one favourite song. And it yeah. was for years, you know, whether it was Capital or Radio yeah. 1, I'm Not In Love, number one. Yeah, that song has been, uh, you know, amazing for us. And when we'd recorded it, 
we knew we'd done something very, very special, really special. We, I remember we used to turn the lights off in the control room and lie on the floor and just listen to it through the speakers. It was great. But none of us said, oh, that's going to be a massive hit. We just thought it was a really brilliant piece of work and that was the end of it for us. But when we played it to our, the record company and our friends and families, they all said, that's going to be an absolute smash. Which it was, of course. The intro is very unusual too. That was a brave intro, wasn't it, at the beginning, the wind-up to the song? Yes, uh, using all the voices that were recorded. Yeah. It, was, um, it was an experience to make the record because we were delving into the unknown uh, sonically in that we had an idea, I think it was Lol's idea, the original idea was that we were going to do it all with voices, but we knew we had to do a backing track do the voices too and then the idea was when the record was finished we'd take the backing track off and then just the voices would remain but even when we did the backing track which consisted of me playing rhythm guitar Eric playing a keyboard and Kevin playing a a Moog synthesizer on a bass drum sound even at that point there was something magical about it must have been quite difficult with the next album because you'd had such success with that I don't think we felt it was difficult. We just did what we wanted to do and, like I said before, hope some everybody liked it. So we didn't... I don't think we felt any, from what I can remember, any, any sort of real pressure. We just had the songs that we'd written and, you know, written either... The, the, the main teams, I suppose, were myself and Eric and the other team was Kevin and Law, but we did mix it up a bit. Um but we knew we, we, we had to do an album and, and that was the, the result was the How Dare You album. But as I said before, there was a feeling I was getting that things weren't well. And I knew Kevin and Lowell wanted to record an album featuring the gizmo, which was this uh, attachment you put on the guitar that makes the strings sustain. And they got well into that, so much so that they we got to the point where it was... We need to do another album. We were going to go on the road. We need an album. We need to rehearse. We need to do this, to do that. And they said, we're not doing it anymore. And um, Just like that? Yeah, pretty much just like that. We tried to... It, it was like a divorce, you know. The two families tried to get everybody to stay together, but to no avail, unfortunately. I mean, Kevin and I have spoken about this quite often and in recent years, about what we sh- how we should have handled it, but we didn't, and that was the end of it. Well, I guess you were younger then, and maybe hindsight's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. I'm Mandy Flyme yeah. was you know, a big hit and yeah. much played. No one really knows what it's about, so maybe you can share the song okay. history. Well, the, the original idea was from a um, United Airlines uh, had a uh, sort of poster campaign, and I saw this poster that said, I'm Susie, fly me to Miami. And I thought, what are you getting at there with Susie and flying her to Miami? And it just struck me as an odd and interesting um, uh, uh, advert. And I spoke to Eric about it and he liked it, although he didn't like the name. He wanted to use another name. I said, it's it's got to be Mandy. It just feels right. Where did Mandy come from then? I have no idea. I have no idea. It's just... As with lots of songwriting, ideas come into your mind and I didn't know a Mandy, it wasn't about anything else other than a stewardess called Mandy. So it's the idea of someone looking into the poster and then going into this sort of dream world. 
But when we'd finished the song, Eric and I, we weren't happy with the lyric. And so we asked Kevin to rewrite it, which he did. And there are lines in there that I don't know what they mean. And I don't really care because I know they feel right. I've never even bothered to ask Kevin what, what he was on about. Can you remember any of the lines that didn't make it or got junked? Well, just, I can't remember the, the lines that got junked. But I mean, just like a rolling stone, I'm outside looking in. I have no idea what that means. But the thing is this, we can all put our own interpretations on lyrics like that. And what always I think about with lyrics is it doesn't necessarily have to make sense, but it has to feel right. And it has to be married to the music in a specific sort of way. So I'm not that concerned about meaning. Private Lives with Paul Robinson. Art for art's sake was a phrase that my uh, dad used to use. He was not a cynical man, not at all. Uh, he was a very artistic, free-thinking man. But the phrase sort of amused him and it amused me as well. It's just very, you know, art for art's sake, but money for God's sake, you know. And it just rhymes so beautifully. It just, yeah, it just feels nice. And then I think when I, I'd said that to Eric and he liked the title, and I think we worked backwards from that title to create the song. What's interesting about your songwriting, hearing you talk about it, you know, very ordinary things have inspired you. You know, mm. the milk bottle, the airline poster, a phrase. Yeah. Is that how songwriting is? It's just something that grabs you and you think, I can do something with that. Yeah, exactly. I think all songwriters will say exactly the same thing. It can be something that somebody says something that really did happen to you, something you've imagined, something you've overheard, something you've mistakenly overheard. But then you go, oh, that's a weird thing to say. I could use that. It's just the songwriter's radar is always on and it's always ready to pick up something. So I've got like a list of lots of little phrases and little rhymes of things that I may or may not ever use, but they're there. So you've got a book and you, you make a note. I mean, when, when you get a phrase or something happens in your life, do you feel you have to try and write the song straight away or can you put it away in a drawer and then come back to it later? Well, what's interesting, I mean, there's, there's two songs on my new solo album, Modesty Forbids, that are about real events. I mean, there are other songs that are about real events as well, but two in particular. One is the, the opening track of the album, which is called Standing Next to Me, which is about my time working with Ringo Starr and the All-Star Band and I had such a great time doing those two tours with him that I wanted to write about the experience and that was it that that's what the, the, it's all about because although Ringo spends a lot of time playing the drums he comes front of stage a lot and his mic and my mic are right next to each other so I'm playing along there enjoying myself and I turn around and there's Ringo Starr and I go Bloody hell, it's Ringo Starr. And I'm back to being a 14-year-old, 15-year-old Beatles fan, you know. Well, you all want to be back to being 14 and 15. Yeah. That sounds great. What is it about Ringo that um, enables you and he to work so well together, do you think? One thing that's important about musicians playing together is it's a lot to do with musical ability. Once you're at a certain level, it's it's no problem for people to play with each other. But I think... If you have respect for one another, you like each other, there's a good vibe in the band. It's really, really important. It's one thing that all the musicians that I'm working with now, um, it's really important to me that we, we get on with each other and we respect each other. It's, it's more respect even than anything else. 
even though we'll we'll have a lot of banter and take the mickey out of each other it's it's done with the kind of love you know um and i think that was the feeling within the um within the all-star band as well it was like that we all got on really really well and i mean working with like people like steve lukather colin hay greg rowley and there's another drummer that uh ringo has for when he you know he plays along with him and obviously uh his name's greg bissonet he plays when ringo's singing front of stage um and a guy called warren ham who's a excellent he's an all-rounder he does everything well um so it was a real joy Let's go to your next number one song in 10cc, which was Dreadlock Holiday. Now, yeah. this is quite a different style for 10cc. There's no style of 10cc. There's no style. Okay, it was, it was a change. It, it, well, it was a change, but we always change. Okay. I'm not going to let you get away with All right, this. Okay. You can it, tell. It was um, surprising, perhaps. It might have been surprising, but... To me, as yeah. a mere punter, it was okay. surprising. All right, as a mere punter. <laughs> Someone buying your records. <laughs> okay, yeah. that qualifies you. Uh, but the thing is, I never like to pigeonhole what 10cc music is. It's 10cc music because right. the basis of that is that there were four creative minds, four writers, four singers, four musicians, four producers that had brought to the you know table all their own influences. Right. Plus, we had a lot of common influences as well. Um, so we would do like country songs or we would do like as you say we did reggae we do ballads we do mad things we do anything we wanted to because we were just doing it for ourselves really not for you at all but you happened to like it thank you just as well and i did and, and bought it and so did lots of other people yeah, it was a, it yeah. was a number one yeah well the chorus came about from a, a conversation i had with someone i was on holiday in in uh, jamaica we were talking about sports and uh, I, I said, what about cricket? Do you like it? He said, no, I don't like it. I said, oh, surprised. He says, I love it. And right there. And there's the line in the song. There's the line. Yeah. And then, we, you know, we adapted it with reggae and Jamaica. I don't like reggae. I love it. And then the song grew from that. And really the song is based on my experiences in Jamaica and Eric's, uh, who was in Barbados around the same time. You were talking about collaboration. Let's talk about the next collaboration, which was with Andrew Gold and Wax. Yes. I met Andrew when 10CC's American record company wanted us to work with an American writer-producer. The idea being that we'd have more chance of having a hit album in America because we hadn't really had a... We'd had hit singles, but no album success, real album success. And that person was Andrew Gold. And I was absolutely delighted because I was a massive fan of his we got on well right away we recorded three songs that he co-wrote and co-produced with us all three were singles which says a lot no sort of big hit but the fact that the three songs that he was involved in were singles says a lot and then Eric and I decided to call it a day and um I was keen to carry on working and uh, called up Andrew and said, I got a built a little studio at home and would you like to come over for a couple of weeks from America and just hang out and let's see what happens. I think he stayed for about six months. And we, we made an album in the house, which we had an absolute ball doing, but nothing happened to it. 
and then we sort of regrouped, moved to RCA Records, and um, started making records as uh, under the name of Wax. And uh, we had two two rec- two singles that were really uh, really important to us. Uh, the first one was Right Between the Eyes, which did really well in Europe, and uh, then we did recorded Bridge to Your Heart on the American English album, and that was our first sort of major hit. Yeah, and I think everyone knows that song. Working with Andrew, how is that different to working with the guys you'd worked with before, particularly the 10CC guys? I think Andrew and I, uh, our influences were more similar. We were both absolute Beatle fanatics, as were all the members of 10CC. But Andrew was about as fanatical as a a fanatic can be. He was super fanatical. So... Really, looking back, it wasn't that much different. We'd sit down and write songs together. You know, either he'd come up with an idea or I'd come up with an idea and we'd work on it together. But we got on very well on a personal level, which was great. And we worked together well. We could do a lot of the recording ourselves because as well as being a, a songwriter, he was a very, very good keyboard player, a very good drummer and a very good guitarist. So really, we were once again. I was with someone. We could be a self-contained unit, as we were with Ten CC. With Wax, we had three very good record producers at different times. Uh, we did three albums, and in fact, by the time we'd done the third album, we had decided because of Andrew's fear of flying, which he did really well. He put up with it, but he, he wasn't happy about it. No wonder he stayed six months. Yeah. Yes. We decided if we didn't have any real success, then then we were going to call it a day as being a band. But we would carry on working together, writing together, which we did. We wrote a lot after Wax. And in fact, not long before he he passed away, uh, we were talking about maybe doing another Wax album. And unfortunately, that never happened, which I'm really sorry about. Podcast Radio. Tell us about the new album. OK, the album is called Modesty Forbids. And it has a fantastic cover. Um, if you want to find it, you can go and buy it. That would be nice. I will, of course. <laughs> of course. Add to all the 10cc <laughs> albums. The album title has absolutely nothing to do what, with what's in the album. It's just a phrase that uh, kind of amused me. And uh, Storm Studios, who did the artwork, came up with an absolutely brilliant picture to go with it. The songs on the album are really about things that have happened to me over the past sort of two or three years, experiences, as I've talked about already with Ringo, there's a song, the second track on the album is called uh, That's Love Right There. I got the idea for that because um, when I go on the road, my wife leaves little notes in my case and sometimes like little chocolate bars. And I was with the band and uh, I found one of these chocolate bars. I, I held it up in the air and I said, that's love right there. That's what it represents. And I thought that is a really nice title for a song. And I worked backwards from the title. I wrote the song. It was pretty much all in my head, which is unusual for me. Usually I sit down with a guitar, but sometimes, and it's happened before, I get whole chunks of songs that arrive, sometimes with the lyrics as well. It was an unusual song for me to do in that the way it came out was kind of like a, a jazz swing song. I thought I needed to get some really special musicians to do it. So um, through Ian Hornell, who plays with with 10CC, I said, I need some, like, the top jazz guys, and he put me in touch with somebody who put me in touch with these guys who were absolutely brilliant. 
we recorded it live as well, which was unusual for me. Um, usually we track things all the time. But it was a joy to work with these guys and a joy to, to record something live. Graham Goldman, thank you very much. Paul Robinson with the greatest guests on Private Lives. Very much after the Olympics, we as East London were able to show the world that there's a place called Stratford and it's not the Shakespeare one, there's this other place where we've built something absolutely amazing that the whole of the world are looking at for a few weeks. And then the, all, the, all the media people disappeared and leaving us with, you actually look at it and you go, well, why isn't there a local radio station for East London? And that was kind of the first thought. Also understanding there's lots of people who could usefully be involved in that. So there's those two reasons. It's like, well, maybe it's an idea to set up a radio station out here. Let's give it a go, see what happens. It really was just like that. We are the voice of East London, ELR. Next to Earl Slick, another ace guitarist who recently played in London with former Sex Pistol Glenn Matlock. I asked him about his early days in New York State. You know, it's hard to look at it from the outside, you know, but I just remember uh, my fondest memories as a kid were from Brooklyn because my parents moved to a place called Staten Island when I was at 12 or 13 years of age, and that was a lot different. I liked Brooklyn better because it was like, it's, it's the city. When you're on Staten Island, you've got to get the ferry to get across to Manhattan or get back to Brooklyn, haven't you? Mm. So did you feel a bit more cut off? I wasn't old enough, really, where that was an issue. But, um, yeah, when we first moved there, it was only the ferry, and then they built that bridge two years after we moved in there. Um, but Staten Island was, considering it was part of New York City proper, it was rural. It really was. I mean, it was, it was a lot of woods and stuff like that, which I wasn't used to, you know. Um, so my head exploded a little bit when we moved there. I'm going, what is this? So coming from Staten Island, how did you become a guitarist? I mean, what's the, what's the evolution of that? It sort of doesn't seem obvious that you would become this cool guitarist living on Staten Island. Um, I don't really, I'm not sure if it mattered where you were from at that point in time because it was uh, a funny time. It, we just come out of the 50s into the early 60s, where in the United States was a really uh, stifled period, the 50s. Um, all honesty, what it was, was that the 50s, you had Elvis, which really shook the tree, Elvis, Jerry Lee, the whole nine yards. It, was, it went from, and all of a sudden, the, the kids, the teenagers, had their own cool, you know, uh, uh, then Elvis went in the service. That all kind of calmed down, and then the Beatles happened, and that was the catalyst. You know, I was, you know, I, I mean, I was around music because you know, my, my, I lived with my grandma for a while, and she played rock and roll radio. She, her favorite person in the world was like Bobby Darin. The day he died, I thought she was gonna like, I don't know what, she, I thought she was gonna explode. I mean, so when she played the radio, I heard Bobby Darin, I mean Chuck Berry, Elvis. Oh, you know, that was a station she listened to, and so it was ingrained. I remember humming along with stuff, but I don't remember thinking of picking up a guitar until I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show in February 9th, 1964. And it just hit a nerve. And the big nerve that it hit was, is I'm 13 or 12 years old at the time, and these guys come on the TV. They don't look like anything I've ever seen before. And these girls are all screaming and going mental. And, it, and the music was really good. And it's just like, whoa. I, I think I want to be that, 
and um, so did every other kid in the neighborhood. And in time, it went from uh, the girls and the screaming and the clothes, and I got a guitar and it found out that I really liked it. You know, that was the beginning. From East London to the whole of London on podcast radio. We are East London Radio. Earl Slick is my guest on Private Lives. You're living on Staten Island. You know, you're fancying becoming a guitarist. You have played, though, with some of the legends in, in rock and roll. Yoko Ono, John Lennon, Neil Dolls, David Bowie. Let's talk about David Bowie. How did you become David Bowie's guitarist? I mean, to actually become the guitarist in the band, um, I, had, I did an audition. But um, it, was, it was a chain of events because... Before I got that gig, uh, I was very visible in New York. I actually managed to make a name for myself playing clubs. And um, when I was about 19 years of age, I met a man named Michael Kamen through a friend of mine. Uh, Michael, for those who don't know, um, he had a band called the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble that actually had a record contract and did proper gigs and all that. And um, he eventually went on to become uh, one of the biggest um, uh, music composers for films in Hollywood. He took a liking to me when, when, at that point, and he, he always would help me out. He'd get me auditions, and, he, and he'd bring me into recording sessions at, at that point when I was about 19 years old. And uh, he had met Bowie. Um, <laughs> he'd done some music for the Joffrey Ballet, and Bowie was there. And Bowie was backstage. He wanted to meet the guy that did the music, which was Michael Kamen. And in conversation, it came up that his guitarist, McRonson, had left the band and he was looking for somebody to replace him. But he didn't want a name. He wanted a fresh new guy. And Michael suggested me. Then there was an audition. And the rest is history, as you would say. And what did you play on the audition? I have no idea. Uh, (laughs) It was a blur, was it? No, actually. It was like the Twilight Zone because I showed up at this audition at RCA Studios in New York City thinking there was going to be David Bowie in the band and I would play songs which is normal but not knowing how abnormal he was uh, so was the audition I showed up at the studio and I was instructed I didn't even see anybody I didn't see him um, he was in a blacked out control room with the producer and they just, they said, put the headphones on. I put the headphones on, and they say, play along with these songs. They said, what song? They said, well, just play along. Okay. Uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, what I was playing to uh, was the Diamond Dogs album. Before it was released, they were still mixing it. So I just played along. I don't even remember what songs they were. I played along for maybe 20 minutes tops. That was it. And you couldn't see them at all? No, no. They had the whole control room blacked out. So very spooky. Oh, it was, it was 1984 and a half. Yeah, it definitely was. It was. And then did they say, come back later? Or did they say, you've got the gig? What was the feedback? Feedback was, is, is uh, I'm playing for about 20 minutes. Oh, that's okay. All right, whatever. So I'm just sitting there like an idiot. Okay, now what? Just sitting there. Then Bowie walks in the room. Uh, and uh, we just sat down and chatted. He, had a, he picked up a guitar. We just played guitars for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. He said, there's my assistant, and she'll give you a call and let you know what's going on. And you got a call back, and it was a yes. The next day, actually, luckily enough, because uh, she said to me, well, we're going to look at a number of other guys. It might be a couple of weeks. I said, oh, whatever, you know, even though 
I wasn't very anxious about it until I was in the studio and I could hear the record and I could see Dave because I really wasn't uh, all that well versed in Bowie at that point. You know, I had owned one album. You know, but then when I saw it going, oh, this is kind of real. This is cool. So when she suggested that it might be a couple of weeks, I thought, hmm. Luckily, they called me the next day. Obviously, I did something right. Let's talk a bit about Bowie. You know, you met him for the first time at that audition. What was he like to work with? Very easy. Um, what you saw and what he was didn't really line up. Um, because when he first walked in the room the first night, it, it was a very odd experience because I get this pale, razor-thin guy with, like, no eyebrows, which is kind of a startling thing. Uh, and then when, you know, and we sat down, and, and in hindsight, it was like he was really normal. Uh, and then we met up at his uh, hotel the next day. Uh, again, normal, you know. So what you see and what it was, it, they were different. So he was very easy to work with. It wasn't like... Um, he wasn't some spaced out, you know, uh, you know, some creative types can get a little odd. They describe like sounds and colors and stuff like, no, he was just straight up, very easy. And he had a clear idea of what he's trying to do with each album? No, yes and no. He had a clear idea once he heard it. <laughs> yeah. So let's go to the Young Americans then, which was the first studio album you yeah. played on. What was that like? I mean, that was obviously a very important album for Bowie. It was because it would be the first album where he had a number one, which was Fame, which he wrote with uh, John Lennon. Um, it was very much a different experience, obviously, than doing a live album. Uh, and I'd played on records before that, you know, but um, we did some of that record, actually, while we were on tour. There would be a break for three days, and we'd be in Philadelphia, and we'd go in and cut a few tracks and do some overdubs, and this went on for a while. And there were a lot more people involved because we had a bigger band than the live band because we had the band, which was, you know, two guitarists, bass player, drummer, keyboard player, piano player, sax player, and, and six backing singers. There was a lot of us. Um, and it wasn't a guitar-driven record, per se. Um, nonetheless, a great record. Um, so for you, maybe not quite as satisfying as maybe some of the subsequent work because it wasn't really as you say guitar driven it was quite poppy yeah too, it in many was ways. you know what it, 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 you talk about i i think that particular record i know that even before that when we were doing the uh, diamond dogs tour which the david live record came from he definitely had uh r&b on his mind and um so we were Matter of fact, I suggested at one point to do uh, Knock on Wood, which we did on that record on David Live. So he was, his, his feet were in there. And, um, and so he just, once he got a mind on, he, he, one thing about Bowie that I learned was so important from an early age is the follow through. You can have every idea in the world that you could be the best this and the best that, but if you aren't tenacious enough to follow through, it's all kind of pointless. I learned that from him. So once he had a mind on, he didn't stop till it was done. And so that's why Young American turned out so well, because he had a, he did have a vision for that. So he was driving it. Hell yeah. 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 He definitely, he had a mind on. And that's why he had certain people involved. I mean, we had one of our backing singers, and the one that did a lot of the vocal arrangements was, was Luke Devandross. 
then a, a very young, very unknown singer, backing singer. And not an obvious backing singer for Bowie, because Luther Vandross is very much sort of dance, soul, pop, isn't he? Yeah, but not then. Nobody knew not Luther. Then. Luther was completely invisible. You know, Luther, uh, Luther um, Robin Clark, uh, Ava Cherry, and there were two or three more singers who kind of disappeared over the years. But, but none of them were solo artists at the time. They were, they, their gig was they were professional killer backing vocalists. You did that album, and then you went on to do the Station to Station album, and this was an evolution for Bowie. I mean, this was now moving much more into the sort of funk and electronic music. Station was uh, a lot different of an experience than um, Young Americans. When I got the call to go make the record, um, I didn't ask any questions of what kind of record are we going to make. You know, I just showed up, and we rehearsed for like two days just to uh, loosen up, you know, and play, play through some ideas. And in, within a day or two, I realized what was going on is most of that stuff was half written. Young Americans, those songs were written ahead of time for the most part. Uh, but Station wasn't. He had fragments and bits and pieces that we put together as we went in the studio, which made it really good because he, he did not have a, 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 a very defined sketch before he we went in. So he was taking input from you then and oh, the yeah. other guys? He always did, but that one he really did. He really did. So, so in what direction did you sort of try and influence things? I didn't try to influence him. What, what, what I did was is uh, I would read him. There was one thing about him that right out, uh, uh, from the, uh, the onset is that uh, I, I could read what he, what he was thinking as far as musically, you know. That's because you knew him by this point? I mean, how did you Not read really, him? no. You know what? You could read certain people. You know, if you meet somebody, you know, there's a person you meet, and they, hey, this is Joe and whatever, and, and Joe, it's like, you know, you can talk about the weather, that's about it. But then you meet Bill, and from the onset, you guys connect on something. That's all it is. So you connected, and I mean, the album had all sorts of influences. I mean, he was, he was listening to Kraftwerk and people like this at the time. Yeah, the Kraftwerk thing really, I mean, to my ears, wasn't that evident. You could hear some of the funk, because we did have Dennis Davis playing drums, who comes from Stevie Wonder, and uh, George Murray on bass and Carlos Alomar on rhythm guitar. So there's your funk. And then I had the rock. So we had the funk and the rock, and then we experimented with certain things. But if you listen to the record, there really aren't any, it's not a synthesizer record. It's guitar-driven. And there are sort of hits on there. I mean, you've got TVC15, Golden Years. They were decent singles. Oh, yeah, uh, Golden Years in particular. Considering that some of those tracks were out there, especially that the title track being almost 10 minutes long, actually got airplay, unedited. That's unheard of. Yes, I mean, it was not uh, heard of to play such long songs at that point. No, no, but, you know, uh, rules are made to be broken, right? Sooner or later, you know, they will play long songs. And then a year from then, they won't play long songs. <laughs> so when you look back at Station to Station, is that an album you feel proud of and you feel proud of your contribution to it? Yes, absolutely, um, for a number of reasons. The experience, the recording experience was great. It just... The idea of not working to a framework is, is, I love that. You know, it was, you had to think on your feet and you had to come up with that stuff out of thin air. It didn't exist before you walked in the studio that day and it did exist when you left. I love that. I mean, that made that experience really good and nothing was 
uh, off the table. Nothing. I mean, if you had an idea, you threw it out. You did, and he would listen to it. And, you know, I mean, some of the stuff we did was, was pretty much on the outside, considering the time it was recorded. And as you look back on David Bowie now, obviously, sadly, no longer with us, how would you um, sum him up? I mean, he was, he was certainly a maverick. He had a massive impact, I think, on many, many artists. You know, it's hard to sum up somebody like that in a word or a sentence. Uh, it's just every once in a while, an individual comes along that is definitely coming from a place that has not really been explored that much before him. And he was one of those guys. Innovator, maverick. I mean, even those words sound trite to me. You know, um, he was David Bowie. <laughs> Let's move on then to John Lennon and Yoko Ono, two legends. How did that relationship start? That relationship started while we were recording Young Americans because uh, with uh, Lennon having written Fame with Bowie and me having played on Fame, um, and we, we covered a, a, a across the universe a Beatles song, a John Beatles song on that album as well. And um, when they were putting together the band for uh, Double Fantasy, Jack Douglas, the producer, was instructed to find the guys that John wanted, and I was on that list of guys um, based on John's memory of us working together five years previous. What's it like working with John Lennon and Yoko Ono? Those two have also got a reputation for being um, challenging. Challenging wasn't, was not an issue. Um, we were basically making two albums at once. We were making a Yoko Ono record and a John Lennon record, okay? I mean, the way the record was structured was a John song or Yoko song like that, okay? And when it was John's songs, he was in charge, and if Yoko said any ideas, she was quickly stifled, and vice versa. You know, but they were easy. It was so easy. But okay. she still relied on him to help put her ideas together because she wasn't, you know, per se a recording artist the way he was. She was a, a, a artist in a whole different realm. So, you know, um, you know, he stayed out of her way as much as he could when she was recording, but she did have to call on him for help, which he didn't have to do with her. And it all just it came out in the wash. It worked great. And were all these songs pre-written? It wasn't a Bowie situation where you're sort of jamming and deciding what's going to happen as you go along. Were, were all the songs already preordained? John had, yeah, John had written these songs. Um, the only things that we had done in the studio were come up with parts and ideas that, that just to suit the song, but the structures and the lyrics for the most part were done before we got there. Before we did the record, there were some rehearsals with some of the guys, but I wasn't at those rehearsals. I, uh, and I know, in hindsight, I know why, is I was hired by, you know, for the record. And, you know, John picked me for a reason. I couldn't read music. I wasn't a session player, and he wanted somebody who was just basically a New York City street rock and roller to offset the studio musician session guys. So I wasn't privy to anything ahead of time. I didn't hear anything, and I wasn't invited to rehearsals. That way, when I walked in and recorded, everything was off the cuff and fresh. And that's what he wanted. This is what he wanted, which was great, because if he had me doing the other thing, he would have fired me the first day. And that would not have been good. So I'm, been glad that, I'm glad it went out the way yeah. it did. You've worked with many, many other people. Who else would you pick out as being someone you really enjoyed working with? If I go back, um, and they're not all necessarily guys that had, had big hit records. There's an American um, songwriter, singer named Tony O'Kay. 
T-O-N-I-K. And we did this record in 1978, and it had a lot of political and, and uh, social satire on, on the record. A very clever record. He was one of the favorite records I did. Um, and along the way, there's so many of them, it's really hard to Let think. Let me ask you, Keith Richards. Yeah. Tell me about Keith Richards. Keith Richards actually played on a record that I did when I had a band with Slim Jim Phantom and Lee Rocker called Phantom Rocker and Slick. Uh, those guys were the rhythm section for the Stray Cats. And... Um, I'd run into Keith Richards at an event in New York City while we were mixing the record, and the light bulb went on. I said, wow, there's, there's at least one track on there that is really perfect for him. So I just asked him, and he said yes, and he showed up, and he did it. And Which, that was it? That well, was it. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I just took a shot. And then when he said he was going to show up, I still didn't count on that till it was done. And what was he like? I mean, you know, he's a legendary figure. What, what was your short relationship like? Short. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we discussed making the record. He didn't show up when he was supposed to. I went down to the Virgin Islands, and then he showed up when I was down there. And he just put the track on. I mean, that was it. You know, I mean, I've run into him here and there since then, but... Uh, that was it. it not, not much of a big story to tell there, except that I got one of my absolute heroes played on my album. And that's something you can't put a dollar amount no, on. No, you, you can't. And that's worth having. And you'll always remember that, I'm yep. sure. Let's talk about the band Slinky Vagabond, where you met Glenn Matlock. Right. That was a funny thing. At the time, I remember all oh, that Facebook thing, right? No, not Facebook. MySpace. It was MySpace. MySpace, yes. It was and big my, at the time. Yes. My kid's going, oh, Dad, you know, you're lame. you got to do this thing. It's in MySpace. Oh, whatever. So I do it. In the interim, somehow, there was messages going back between me and a, and a Brit fashion designer named Keenan Dufty. And he had some music on there that I liked. And we exchanged phone numbers. And I called him and we spoke. And he said, well, would you be up for playing on some stuff? So we got together. We did a little bit of writing, um, some home demo stuff, and then um, he was talking about recording it proper, and uh, Glenn's name came up. He said, if you, if, do you know Glenn Malick? I know who he is. He said, but I don't really know the guy. He said, would you be into going to the studio? Absolutely. Uh, and then from there, Clint Burke got involved, and I'm not sure if it was Glenn's idea or Keenan's idea. So Keenan got uh, Clem involved as well, and then we decided to go in a studio in upstate New York and, and, and do some recording, which came out really good. Did a few gigs in the New York area, and, you know, it, they were good. Uh, it wasn't something that could have really had much of a life. I mean, between our schedules, Clem lives in L.A., Glenn's in London, and me and Keenan were in New York. It was impossible. But for as short-lived as it was... Uh, the payoff was really good because, you know, uh, over time, with Matlock, you know, doing gigs and recording and stuff, um, we just started working together, you know, here and there. And then the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of stuff together. Well, let's just talk to Glenn because he's here. So, Glenn, what was it like working with this guy when he met Earl? You know, was it an instant partnership or was it something that sort of blossomed over the years? You're obviously continuing to work together, which means it must be going well. Yeah, I'd like to think there's a big grudging mutual um, respect. I like playing with Earl because I'm mainly the writer, but I think I tried to get a little bit more Americana somehow, going back to the whole thing with the, the Dylan thing. And I, I find Earl plays 
sort of brings out the best in my songs. Because so you're quite that's different, important. you two, aren't you? I mean, that's maybe the strength. Oh, oh, yeah, but I think we had a good sort of funny relationship straight away. I mean, I remember being in the studio, and we recording something, and he said, what key is it in? And I said, hey, and he gets his cap out. And I said, that's cheating. And he's going, oh, you, you're going to be like that, Matt Locke. <laughs> yeah, I know full well that you got an open string and thing, but it didn't stop me from trying to take the mickey a little bit. And we had a good rapport. That's so the British we, we sense of humour, isn't it? We, yeah, it's a British tongue-in-cheek sense of humour. And um, I think we got a bit of a Jack Lemon Walter Matthau thing. Oh, now that's a good parallel. Yes, but we also was having quite an interesting discussion the other day. I also did some playing... Chris Baden is fantastic, and um, Slim Jim, and uh, your mate um, Robert Gordon, right? Who and they've and Spedden and Robert Gordon have got a real Jack Lemon, Walter Matthau thing going on. But then I did think that if Robert Gordon was with Walter Matthau, Robert Gordon would be Walter Matthau, and Walter Matthau would be Jack Lemon. Oh, there you go. Obviously, Glenn's been watching far too many you movies, can, If I you think. can follow that, yeah, I'm a little bit I'll confused. buy you a drink. Which one is which? Well, I'm all are confused, and I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> you, you guys and capos are not cheating, by the way. No, fair enough. But you, you guys got on well, but you said it wouldn't last. Why, why wouldn't it last? Why wouldn't what last? This particular band, Slinky Vagabond. It, it, you know, uh, it's... Uh, with you know four really busy guys in our own right um and those things are very hard to keep together you know keenan keenan's first really career is his is his fashion that's what he does and one, one thing that was going on at the time keenan had um done something with bowie's back catalogue of clothes and there's a store across america called target which I don't, the equivalent here might have been CNA or something like that, Coats and Axe, my nan used to call it, right? But he'd done these clothes and they had a little line in there and the label was Bowie and Keenan looking at each other. So we thought, oh, that could be, you remember that? Yeah. yeah. That was yeah. an added little kind of plus, but, you know. I've never heard David Bowie and CNA mentioned in the same breath, but I'm very glad you did do that. Yes. <laughs> so... He's laughing. So, what about the future? What what are, you, what are you working on now? Let's talk about the new projects. Oh, right now, um, I mean, I'm over here again in London with Glenn Matlock, and we got like a dozen or so gigs coming up. Um, we just did some fresh new recording, which will be coming out sometime. Yeah, I think it'll be out in um, in the autumn. Yeah, end of the summer. Autumn 2020. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. I think there's some good stuff on there. I just write and you have enough songs and we've got an album's worth of thing. But I think we're kind of forging a bit of a sound. I don't want to pigeonhole it, but what, what sort of sound can we expect? You know, the way Glenn writes, uh, it's, it's really um, easy for me to just fall into it and play naturally, unless he's doing his uh, Jack Lemon thing, you know. Um, whining about this and that, or, or watching me making faces. You know, I can... I could see his face when my back is turned. That's how intense the faces get. And it works out, though, because we will go back and forth. And at the end of the day, it works great. And it all comes down to the music. The way that the songs are written, I hear them and I hear ideas right away. And that is the best way to record. So I couldn't, it's, it's got rock elements to it. It's very hard to describe it. Compared to the last recording, I, I did play a lot more in the blues style, which I'm more accustomed to on this thing. And, and against the stuff that he wrote, it works out great. 
Well, we look forward to hearing that new material in the autumn very, very much indeed, and I'm glad it's coming on well and hate to categorise it, but you understand why I asked the question. Yeah, it's um, not a reggae album. It's not a reggae album. No, no, I, I got that. Last question then. Is there anybody you haven't played with who you'd like to play with who is still alive and therefore oh, it's still to be possible? Alive. Well, otherwise mm. it's not possible, is it? <laughs> the alive part is, is the catch. Unless you can dig them up. Oh, my God. I don't think I'll have to get back to you on that. I don't know. Okay. I already have played with all of them, so there you go. Everybody you've played with, really? Earl Slick, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Stay listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives very soon. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The The Corner Corner of Gray Street. Street.